Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call. 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send your email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah July. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me, my co-host, Steve Ovens. Welcome to the program, sir. Mr. Chalaya, how is your day going? Oh, my day has, you know, my work week has been fantastic, and there are some cool tips and things that I've learned this week that I'm going to be excited to share as the show rolls on, but my personal life, Steve, it's gone, it's been kind of rough. My, my laptop crashed, my Switch crashed, like, I basically am technology-less for a little while here. Are you running that uh, that there Linux? I hear it crashes all the time. I know. So unreliable. You know, I would tell you, and I try to tell clients this all the time, and I tell people who ask, they say, hey, why do you recommend Linux? Or, you know, I like Mac or I like Windows or I like this. And I always tell people it's about choosing the kind of problems that you want to solve. All operating systems, anything that has software, software is written by humans. Humans aren't perfect. Therefore, the software that runs on computers is not going to be perfect. And so you're never going to find a problemless operating system. Certainly, I think there are less issues with a Linux-based operating system than macOS or Windows. But at the end of the day, you are choosing what problems you want to solve. Where where this is not would not be a fair comparison is my work laptop is the epitome of, I wonder if that'll work. <laughs> you do that enough times and eventually it doesn't work anymore but hey steve i'll fix my problems i can just reinstall and try that new ansible script that we have out to rebuild my laptop that won't be an issue there's something you can't do on windows instead let's focus on fixing your problems and not you steve but you the listener so you can write in live at asknoahshow.com we've got a ton of emails to get to this week so keep sending those in we'll continue to address them our first email comes in from charlie charlie writes good day all including steve and noah a person on episode 268 had issues with molvad vpn i suggest beside molvad looking into ivpn IVPM instead of RiseUp. I don't trust RiseUp at all. I would suggest migrating away from large corporate providers such as T-Mobile, etc. I remember a few Linux podcasts that were sponsored by Ting. Are they still around the USA and still reasonably priced? Maybe an option. Otherwise, hunt around for another phone provider. So, I would, I, I would, I would, I would say this. So, a couple things. So, first of all, Ting is an MVMO, which means that they don't have enough money or size to operate their own actual cell phone network. So what they do, they negotiate a contract with Sprint and uh, T-Mobile and say, hey, we want, and now the same company, hey, we want to offer this service. We can't do that. Can we buy some tower space for you? Can we rent some space for you on your infrastructure and we'll resell it under our, our own plans? They negotiate an agreement and they go ahead and do that. So from a privacy perspective, you're probably not a whole lot better off with Ting versus anything. And I, I would tell you that there isn't a good cell phone provider for privacy. They all have problems with it. The way to address that is on the client end. When you're using voice communication, use voice communication that has end-to-end encryption. When you're using text communication, use text messaging that has end-to-end encryption. And if you're not going to do those things, then just treat it like it's out in the open. Steve, what are your thoughts? So changing a mobile provider is not always an option. Mm. But just like what you were saying, where um, essentially you've got a reseller, that doesn't necessarily help. So in Canada, there's a, a big provider called Bell. And they own, oh, I don't even know, some astronomical percentage of the infrastructure because in the early 1900s, the government gave them tons of cash to go ahead and lay the infrastructure and then follow that up with a bill that said you, you're not allowed to du- duplicate infrastructure, which means the first person that lays the line is the person that has the line in the area. So the modern day thing is the government compels Bell to rent out their line, but that's it. So if if Bell is in your area and then you go with another provider like Tech Savvy or something else, they're beholden, like you were saying, 
to the parent company. So if Bell wants to throttle torrent traffic, that will affect everybody in the area, regardless of your provider, because they own the infrastructure. So it's not always as simple as just changing your provider. And geography plays a big part in the decision-making process of who you can and can't go with. Like, I could go with Verizon where I am in South Dakota, except that aside from my city, they pretty much have no towers. So, you know, it's one of those things you have to make the best of a bad situation. Yeah, I so I recently changed mobile phone providers and I, I did some research and uh, settled on what I think is the best out of all of them. None of them are great. Um, so, I, again, I, I would just circle back to if, if you're worried about privacy on, on mobile, then I would I would look to technology that can solve that regardless of what your provider is doing or trying to do. Our second email comes in from Ray. Ray writes in and says, hey, guys. Many in the privacy community see VPN services like Proton VPN or Molvat as a must-have, saying that your devices should be connected to them at all times to keep yourself secure online. However, as a system administrator and a privacy nut myself, I have a really hard time reckon- recommending this practice to my friends and family. I do subscribe to a VPN provider, and I use it for specific purposes, but it doesn't feel right to me to just indiscriminately forward all my traffic to a third party that I know very little about. While I don't love my ISP, at least they're operating within the regulations of the country that they're based in. Why should I trust a VPN provider to maintain my privacy any more than an ISP? My real question is, do either of you actually keep a persistent connection to a VPN service on your devices? Why or why not? Thank you both for what you do. I've been listening from the beginning and I never miss an episode. Thanks, Ray. So first things first, Steve, do you have a persistent connection on your device? Pretty much all my mobile devices. So my phone and my tablet are always connected to Surfshark. Now, this is not a glowing recommendation for Surfshark. It just happened to be the one that I landed on. Um, but yes, always it is always connected. And on my phone, I actually have the little kill switch toggle so that I, the internet doesn't cross over onto public Wi-Fi, for example, without me knowing it. <coughs> so yeah, I absolutely do that. On my computers, not so much um, because there's a lot more that I can do to control that. For example, um, I make sure that my DHCP server hands out specific DNS um, that claims, and I have to go with claims, that claims they don't log anything, You know that they're freedom respecting and things like that. So there's a bunch of stuff that you can do on a computer that you can't guarantee will happen on mobile because while you can try and hand out, hey, go use you know, whatever alternate DNS, a lot of times, especially on Android, it will just use Google's DNS because it's hard coded somewhere. So things like the NVIDIA Shield, for example, are notorious for that. So uh, the only way that you can really get around that is funneling your traffic through something that that um, you have some level of control over. So I divide, I would divide Ray's question up into a couple of components. So the first component is... He says that some people talk about having this as a must-have and you have to keep the devices online all the time. Why do you recommend doing that? Uh, Because it doesn't feel like it's any more secure to forward it to a third party. So I'm going to break that up into a a couple of parts. So the first part is why the third party over the ISP? That's pretty low-hanging fruit. Your ISP makes money off of you in three ways. First, you pay the bill. And so they make money off of you there. Second of all, if you read your agreement, almost all ISPs reserve the right to harvest at least some of your data, if not all of it. Uh, Anything that they can get their hands on, even if it's just what sites you visit, browsing history, times you're online, that kind of stuff. And then they're able to sell that back to other places. So the most VPN providers, places like Molvet and Proton, their business model, their marketing, their uh, niche is serving people who are privacy advocates, people who say, I want better privacy than the next guy. And so while the ISP has all of the uh, motivation in the world to log your traffic and understand your browsing habits because it makes them more money, the companies that are selling VPN services would flat out go out of business 
if they were caught doing the same. And many of them are right. One of the things I tell people over and over and over again, I see all sorts of uh, podcast and YouTube reviews of people saying this is the best VPN and this is the best VPN. But when you ask questions like, have you actually looked at where the court cases are and who is who is giving up this information and who is not? To me, that's the largest test to tell me that, hey, this works or hey, it doesn't. So that's why I would tell you that there is value in this third party is that their their motivations are likely different from your ISP. I do, however, understand what you're saying. Your ISP, you have a representative, you have a signed contract, those kinds of things. And like you say, they are in your country. So there is you have some way of going after them. Therefore, there is some liability on their part and there is some inclination on their part then to serve you well. But. That would be how I would divide those two out. Then as far as being persistently connected or not persistently connected, it depends on if as a system administrator, you are likely already asking yourself this question, who controls the network and who can see my traffic? If you control the network switch, and so you know there are no mirrored ports and you know that everything is happening over SSL and all of those things are in order, then your prop there's no way to man in the middle then you're probably okay to go straight out your ISP's connection and 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 connect to a secure server. There are three things that you should be willing to accept. The first is that you don't believe that there's any attack that can be uh, leveraged against you from the open internet. So in other words, when I go to my bank, I trust that SSL is going to keep my packets safe in the jacket of SSL from my computer all the way to my bank site. If so, you have to be comfortable with that. The second thing you better be comfortable with is that if that information ever got out to, uh, you know, uh, a law enforcement or uh, friends and family or whatever it is that you visit this site, you need to be comfortable with that information coming out. And if you're comfortable with with those things, then you're likely to be fine just going out on the Internet because there's nothing wrong with it. Where a VPN starts to add tremendous value, in my opinion, is when you're sitting at the coffee shop and you don't control the network, worse yet, the guy who's supposed to be controlling the network often isn't controlling the network. They just they set it up, they run by night, they install it, and then they flee. And now all of a sudden, you have another issue yeah, and arguably a bigger issue. And people are setting up rogue access points and those kinds of things. That's where you need to get a little more concerned. I would say the same thing if you're staying inside of a hotel. Those are the times where you can spin up a VPN, get out to the internet, and you know that your traffic, it's not maybe the same as if you were sitting in your home internet connection, but at least you have a connection to a service that's loyal to you and not loyal to whatever else. Um, and then I would finish that up by saying you can kind of live in the best of both worlds. So at our house, we have a internet connection that comes in, the WAN connection goes into the router, and the, well, actually, WAN connection comes into the switch. Switch is, the WAN is on its own VLAN. VLAN then splits out, goes back into the router. Router gets its IP address. WAN connection goes into a second router, has a persistent connection to a VPN, comes back out. Both LANs come back into the switch on their own respective VLAN. So depending on what SSID you connect to, if you connect to internet, then it's just going to put you onto a VPN internet connection. You can search whatever you want, do whatever you want, because it's 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 out here. It's it's the privacy part. If you're going on our home network, well, now you need to be a little bit more conscious about what you're typing into your web browser, those kinds of things. So I, I think you can kind of split the difference uh, there and, and, and try that. But uh, I would agree with you that there... For me, it really comes down to speed, is if you're constantly having a persistent connection over a VPN, you're unlikely to get the same speeds that you would get just on the raw internet. And I also believe that there are enough tools that exist now that it doesn't, if you want to go ahead and deep packet inspection my traffic, you knock yourself out. I have seen some pretty scary things. Uh, I've seen school districts that have special routers that have the ability to, uh, they intentionally design them and they work with companies to design them to intentionally man in the middle traffic so that they can intercept students doing some things, uh, very, very scary stuff. But uh, if if you have those kinds of threats vectors that you're concerned about, that's where I think you really start to use a, per, a, a persistent style VPN. But you're right. If if you're just, I'm going to Gmail and I'm going to check my, my email and I don't care if my ISP knows, knock yourself out. Go ahead and don't use a VPN. I think you're probably just fine. Our third email comes in from Dennis. Dennis writes in and says, hey, Noah, I was recently browsing the marketplace on DigitalOcean and I came across WireGuardian.io. So I spun up an instance and I connected the WireGuardian app to my phone. 
It was dead simple with a QR code profile install. Since you are a big fan of WireGuard, I wanted you to know what you thought of this tool. And he links to WireGuardian.io. So I have to tell you, I have never used WireGuardian.io, but this looks very cool. And the fact that it's easy to spin up on DigitalOcean, this is this could be another way, depending on what you're looking to get out of VPN uh, out of a VPN service, you could do this, right? Go to, instead of signing up for a VPN service, just sign up for a DigitalOcean account, uh, and 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 spin this up, and then connect through WireGuard out to DigitalOcean. That becomes your connection to the world, and uh, you've maybe not reduced so much in the way of privacy because everything can still kind of be tracked back to you. But at least you don't have to worry about somebody snooping on your traffic, and at least you know. Uh, that you have the agreement with the place that the traffic is going out. Steve, you played with WireGuardian at all? No, I still am stuck with uh, OpenVPN. I I find it dead simple in the uh, in the router's UI to set it up, and so I just haven't moved from that. I, I played around with WireGuard as a general thing in the past, but I honestly just couldn't be managed, bothered to kind of manage the the connections and stuff like that. I know that it's it's simple and it doesn't take very much, except that when you've got multiple endpoints and you've got to go and make sure none of the endpoints conflict. And mm. yeah, I just can't be bothered. Yeah, I, I've used it personally. Um, and that's exactly what I do. Hey, I, when this traffic is destined for this network, go ahead and spin it up. And I have taken the time to, to split all of that out. Um, but until some of the user land features are there to support tying in with uh, hardware authentication keys and tying to directory services and stuff like that. It's going to be a really hard sell for many of our clients. So I, I, we're still on OpenVPN. And, and don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with OpenVPN. It's just significantly larger code base than, than WireGuard. So I have, I have bright hopes for the, for the future of WireGuard. Our fourth email comes in from Josh. Josh writes in and says, Noah, love the show and what you do for the community. I've decided to go back to school online. And I've noticed that the school requires a lockdown browser for tests and quizzes. They only advertise support for Windows and Mac. To avoid any chance of being accused of trying to cheat or attempting to virtualize Windows, I decided to dual boot on my desktop. And this was easy since I had a spare drive. On my laptop, however, I don't like running around without Lux being applied to my drive. I went out and grabbed a one terabyte NVMe. I installed Windows, resized the partition and installed Pop! OS 2004. Everything worked great, but I was never given an option to encrypt. And sure enough, when I booted up, Lux wasn't applied. When I went back through the install, this time I manually built out the drive, setting up Lux and LVM. I made a boot partition, root partition, swap, and then I went back through the install and Pop! OS complained that the boot partition couldn't find any EFI partitions. I ended up rebuilding the partitions to not have a boot partition being encrypted by Lux. This somewhat makes sense, but wasn't sure how to remedy. I thought Grub2 would be applied to the Windows boot partition and it could decrypt my Lux uh, encrypted volumes revealing the boot partition. Currently, my root and swap are encrypted, but the boot partition is completely in the clear, which means my data is protected, but my kernel could be swapped out from under me. Well, this isn't a realistic threat factor for me. It just made me wondering what I could have done differently. Apologies for the long email. Any advice you could give would be greatly appreciated. So I, I, I should be clear. I, So far as I understand it, I am 99% sure that on a default Lux encryption on a, on a default uh, Lux install with Lux encryption on the disk, it does not encrypt the boot partition, can't encrypt the boot partition. And this is why when you boot the computer, you're going to see Grub first. It's going to give you an option of what kernel to boot. And once you select the boot entry, that is when you're prompted for your decryption key to decrypt the rest of the disk so that it can actually boot. Um, and this is by design, right? Because otherwise the bootloader would have no way of being able to see what's in the partition, let alone boot it. Steve, what are your thoughts? So I actually came across a Void Linux uh, wiki article about uh, this exact thing. And I believe that it is possible to, um, to encrypt the boot partition because you, can, you should be able to have the UEFI stub, which has to be unencrypted uh, because of various reasons, mm -hmm. not to mention the fact that it's fat. Um, but I believe that the, the Grub stub can actually have enough, from my reading of this article, that it has enough to be able to um, launch the decryption so that you can get the prompt to unlock your boot drive. So 
I think it is possible because um, I'll I'll try and dig up the the article and put it in the show notes. I should have done that earlier, but um, I'm not so worried about. I understand why you might be worried about someone switching out the kernel, but you're dual booting Windows. I would be much more worried about that than somebody grabbing your laptop, swapping out the kernel without you knowing, and then giving you your laptop back. The evil mate attack, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. That's a pretty complicated one though, because you'd have to be, in order to do that, you would have to be able to mount that. So you wouldn't be able to mount that from Windows unless somebody um, put the EXT drivers in Windows to mount your boot partition to then replace the kernel. So the only other option is they have like a USB drive and they have a live environment. But once you have physical access to the machine, that's pretty much game over anyways. So 2-Bit in the chat room, he joins us on MindDrip1.com, says, on UEFI installs, I believe Pop! OS is using a different bootloader. So that, there might be something there too. Our fifth email comes in from Jimmy. Jimmy writes in and says, hi, no one, Steve. I'm making a seed spreader that will have a battery-powered motor that needs to be controlled from a short distance. One way is to have a Raspberry Pi controlling a relay to turn the motor on and off. The Pi would be hosting a wireless access point and then have another Pi connect to it over Wi-Fi with a physical switch programmed to send the data to the main Pi via SSH, HTTP, or something similar. Do you know of any reliable radio transceivers for Pis or something that will be more straightforward or reliable than Wi-Fi. I haven't had much experience in sending data over Bluetooth. Maybe this is another option. The seed spreader will be hung from a helicopter and the pilot will have the remote. It must be reliable as they are far too expensive to be having downtime to computer problems. Thanks for all you do, Jimmy. So um, there's a couple of generic uh, pieces of advice I can give you and then I'll have to do a little digging to find a specific model recommendation. So I, uh, the the radios that I have uh, experience with that I think might be good for this actually come from a company that does uh, uh, watering. They, they, they have uh, um, sprinkler systems. That's the word I'm looking for. So they have sprinkler systems for farming and they have gigantic sprinkler systems and they have to monitor how much water to, how much water is coming out, which ones are on, which ones are off, all that kind of stuff. And they use some very specific radios to do that. So I'll dig those up and I'll get you the model. And that's what I would think of. But here is the general premise or the, the general principle that you want overriding in your mind when you're thinking about these things. You need to be able to control the frequency space of the or the frequency spectrum of the of the frequency that you're using. And so if you don't own that frequency spectrum, you're going to find you're going to constantly come across problems. Um, and so what that's going to look like is it works one day, but then the next day it doesn't. And if you were to go take an RF analyzer, uh, RF spectrum analyzer and go look, what you'd find is, hey, there's some interference on this particular frequency. So what can you do? Well, you call the FCC and say, hey, I have this thing and it's up and running and I'm using it and uh, everything was going great. And all of a sudden today it's not working and I go and look and some idiot is on my frequency and they're talking and the FCC is going to tell you, well, you don't have exclusive use to that frequency. If you'd like exclusive use to that frequency, you're going to have to file with the ULS, file a bit, a license saying what you want to use the radio for, what frequency you're going to use the radios on. We issue a 10 year license. We give it to you, you pay for it. And then you can program radios to operate on that frequency up to a certain, uh, they call it ERP. So effective radiated power. And then you're able to use it. That is the only way that you are going to actually get, uh, consistent, reliable communication. And even then, you should understand and be prepared to deal with people that cause interference. Verizon Wireless absolutely has control over their frequency spectrum. They buy frequency from the federal government, from the from the FCC, and they have it licensed, and they're the primary users of those frequency. When they come across interference issues, and it happens constantly, I'm friends with a good, a good friend of mine is an RF engineer for Verizon. And this is his job. He gets in his car and Verizon says users are reporting or or really now it's all automated data that, hey, these cell phones are dropping out and they should be connecting to this tower and we should be seeing this RSSI and we're not. Can you go over there and take a look? And his job is to drive over there and use a spectrum analyzer to say, is anything else talking on frequencies that Verizon is? And frequently he finds something and he has to go knocking door to door until he finds something. He say, hey. Uh, do you have anything like, and then, you know, he's got his list, fluorescent lights, new LED lights, blah, 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 things. Oh, yeah, I have one of those. Can I come see it? Can I have you shut that off for me? Yep. Okay, thanks. 
hey, the noise disappeared when that person shut it off. He fills out the report, sends it back to Verizon. Verizon then contacts the FCC and says, hey, at 1234 Make Believe Avenue, there's a TV in there. And when our RF engineer went out and had the, the customer shut or had the person shut their TV off, the interference to our tower went away. Here's our license. We're the primary user of this frequency band. You need to have this discontinued. FCC then sends a letter to that person and says, hey, you have a TV. You need to turn it off. It's causing harmful interference and violates part 18 of the of, uh, FCC uh, regulations. So you have to shut this device off. Um, and and that is a battle that Verizon Wireless pays dedicated people nonstop to do just to go around and hunt all of this stuff down. So when you say what what gets me a little what what makes me a little nervous and when you say it must be reliable is they're far too expensive to be having downtime uh, due to computer problems. If it is that. Uh, if it's that sensitive, if, if it's that important, then you're going to want to make sure to control the frequency spectrum. And the only way to do that is to work with the FCC and then have a plan of action when you have interference. But anything short of that, there are frequencies that you're able to use with a certain level of ERP, like you can use Mars and stuff like that as long as you're below five watts. Uh, so you can do those things and they'll work 95% of the time. It just every once in a while you're going to have a problem. And when you do, you don't really have a recourse. And if you want more information about that or you want to dig into that deeper, understand that con those concepts deeper, take a look at some of the WISP forms out there because Unify sells the nano beams. They're hundred bucks. Great little radio. You can get a gigabit connection, uh, symmetrical gigabit connection. For like $200, absolutely fantastic. Problem is, it's unlicensed frequency space. So the second your neighbor decides to do the same thing and you clash, you don't really have recourse. And so that's bitten a lot of ISPs. And so I see a huge amount of discussion in, in the WISP forms. I, I would invite you to check that out if you want to learn more. And I'll, I'll try and dig up the exact model of those radios I'm thinking of. And we'll try and have those for you in the show notes. Uh, Steve, your thoughts? I would say I would take a look at the LoRa protocol. Because that can go a long, long distance, um, and you can get LoRa receivers for Raspberry Pis or similar. Um, I'm not exactly sure the distance for LoRa, but I've heard they can go a couple of miles, which probably would be sufficient based on, like, because you talked about um, being controlled from a short distance. Um, and I might consider doing something like using MQTT uh, in order to have a place to store like the various message commands so that, that you have those sorts of things. Mm. So um, that would be what I would look at. I, my initial thought was like Z-Wave can go a decent distance, but then when he said helicopter, like, is this an actual helicopter? Like he's, he's essentially crop dusting with a helicopter. That seems like it would spread the seeds uh, like a ridiculous amount, but I don't know anything about this. Um, but yeah, that's what I would I would take a look at the LoRa protocol and see if that doesn't serve you because then you can make sure that yeah, you you're, you're going to have some level of interference, I guess, but it's not going to be the same as what Noah's talking about because essentially it's going to try and make direct connection to the device and, and um essentially pair with with whatever receiver that you're using. If you it and it depends on how short of a distance we're talking, right? So the Radio waves, we measure radio waves in loss as we get away when the, when the, when the source gets away from the, uh, from the destination. And so if we touch the two radios together, it's still not a perfect connection. There's some loss. There's just not very much. And the further we get away, the further it's going to drop off and it's logarithmic. So the faster it's going to drop off. And so when you say a short distance, maybe if all of this is, exists inside of the helicopter, you know, you might not have to worry about it. Um, but, but uh, anyway, uh, gives you something to think about. We'll have some links for you in the show notes and uh, we'll try and get a hold of a of, uh, model of those radios. And um, you can buy them used on eBay pretty inexpensively. And it would, at least it would give you something to start with. You could test and see if that works for you. Our so the thing I, sorry, just one more thing. The reason, one of the other reasons I would use MQTT is because um, essentially you can set it up to, I'm, I'm going to use the wrong terminology for ease of understanding, but you can set it up to do a handshake so that, a signal gets sent and then the receiver sends back to the original sender, hey, I got your message, and they kind of do this little dance to make sure that the message is received. So when you're dealing with kind of mission critical stuff, you're probably, you know, he's talking about how uh, you want to make sure that it's more reliable than Wi-Fi. That, that indicates to me you're worried about messages dropping. And so you're going to want to use some sort of messaging queue that ensures that the message gets there 
And if it doesn't, it's going to resend. So that's just something I would think about. Our sixth email comes in from Paul. Paul writes in and says, you've been talking about collaborative spreadsheets a bit on your show, and I thought I'd throw in my two cents. I like cryptpad.fr for any of my high security collaborative work. Users don't need to use an email address to sign up, and you have lots of controls over sharing and individual permissions. You get one gigabyte of free, which should be plenty for day-to-day use. It's a zero-knowledge provider. End-to-end encryption has some really interesting features. Features including Scrum, boards, images, text documents, as per below, a few more. One downside is that it's currently web-based only. Not sure if a client is on the horizons. Warm regards, Paul. So a couple of things there. I've not heard or or um, or used cryptpad.fr. Steve, have you? Uh, no, I just kind of took a look at the screenshots that the, the listener sent into the original email. So I haven't actually used it. So I, I browsed around on their, poked around on their site for a little bit. It looks pretty cool. The fact that they have a Kanban board, the fact they have a whiteboard, they support, essentially, it's like a, it's like a encrypted, uh, G Suite, essentially, they have, you know, they have a drive, they have a whiteboard, they have spreadsheets, they have documents, they have, uh, a specific thing for writing, uh, like a programming code and then a Kanban board um, completely powered by open source and completely end to end encrypted. So it checks all the boxes to be sure. I mean, no doubt about it. I, I just, I'd not heard of it before and I'd not played with it. I will tell you as far as it only being web-based, there are so many things right now that have a client, but they don't really have a client. They've just web wrapped their web application inside of an electron wrapper and given you an installer. So from that perspective, I start to question how valuable having a native application really is. I always prefer it. It, I can definitely tell the difference between a native application and a web app. But at the end of the day, 99% of the time, what you're really looking for is the ability to minimize to the tray or the ability to have it in a separate window or the ability to break out your Word documents from your spreadsheet documents and all of that. And that is likely solvable with just some sort of an electron wrapper. So even if they don't have a client, you could probably work around it. And this is an otherwise really cool suite that I'd not previously heard of. So thank you for sending it in, Paul. Our so seven- it looks like it's, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting a lot tonight. No, you're good. Uh, I'll have to do, do something to jump up and down and get your attention. Um, it's using OnlyOffice as a backend and OnlyOffice does, has a, does have a desktop suite that they, they do have. I don't know whether you can connect it to, um, to this cryptpad.fr, but I do think it's interesting. You can actually get a really good sense. I remember we were talking with Naylor uh, a couple of weeks ago about OnlyOffice and how that could be set up. If you just wanted to see what OnlyOffice was capable of before trying to jump through the hoops of installing it yourself, I'd say definitely give this a, uh, a look because that's what they're using in the back end. Absolutely. Um, you know, and OnlyOffice, man, that just keeps coming up more and more. Uh, our seventh email comes in from Eric. Eric writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. For the caller who is looking for a collaborative spreadsheet, I would suggest Zoho Sheet. In a previous episode, Zoho was mentioned as an alternative email service. The rest of the suite was not mentioned. Zoho is a subscription service, and its privacy policy sounds reasonable. There are no ads, and I'm not, and I am not the product. I have used their free tiers since the early 2000s and have no need to upgrade to a paid plan. Here's a link to the privacy policy and it links to Zoho.com slash privacy. I would consider Zoho as good of an option for someone is looking to de-Google. And indeed, I think actually wasn't Red Hat run on Zoho or no, uh, no, no, no. I guess that was Zimbra. Yeah, it was Zimbra. I, I've used Zoho for their free, uh, their free email hosting in a couple of times. And it's, and it's been actually pretty different. Um, or actually been pretty decent that where, where Zoho kind of fell off, fell off the charts for me is when you need their paid service, it gets really pricey, really fast. But if you can live in their, in their, uh, in their free version, then I, I think that's legit. Hey, Steve, we did have a request from two bit in the geek lab, uh, over at mindrip1.com. He's saying that uh, he would like a video of Steve jumping up and down to get Noah's attention. So <laughs> Things yeah, we're gonna have to work so on this week. Noah. <laughs> yeah, well, we're, I'm just saying we're gonna have to we're have to get that hammered out here. Our eighth email comes in from Wave. Wave writes in and says, "Hi, Stephen Noah. The last time I sent in questions, I sent a really long email. So this time, I'm gonna send several small questions. Feel free to break those up over several episodes if it makes sense to do so. I run several VLANs at home." 
I have a Netgear R6400 that I flashed with DDWRT, hoping that it could be a 2.4 gigahertz and 5 gigahertz access point for the late, for the, I'm assuming it means last two VLANs. It works, but performance has been flaky. What alternatives would you recommend? This access point or several access point? Would positioned in the center of my house. My property is about a third of an acre. The Netgear currently loses connection close to the edge of my property, and I'm okay with that. I have a toddler that I'm sure is days away from learning how to escape his crib. We have an RF audio-only baby monitor, and it's time to upgrade to video. I need to be able to see what he's doing at night, and the video must stay local to my network. What do you recommend? I'd be happy with an IP camera that I could connect to its feed if there were a Wi-Fi option or some means to connect. I don't have Ethernet in the kids' room. For running VMs at home, I use a Dell R710. At my old job, we used VMware products, so to practice... I have ESXi free installed, but my server is so old that now it's out of support even from VMware. I've never used KVM or other open source options for virtualization. Is it easy to migrate over? Are there features that VMware that would make you pay for, like vCenter's vMotion? Thanks. Wave. So I, I wanted to include this email tonight specifically because I spent the better part of, of, of Friday and some of Thursday digging into this uh, this very question. So when you're looking at, at doing multiple VLANs uh, across Wi-Fi networks, the, the, the brand that, that I use and the brand that Steve uses at his house is Unify. And if you use all Unify hardware, Unify switch, Unify router, Unify switch, they make it super easy. You specify networks. They don't really, they don't really call them VLANs, but you specify networks. You tie a SSID to a network and it just works. And you tell the access point then where the, which network the controller lives on and it just works. When you want to use third-party switches, which I would absolutely recommend you do because there are some serious drawbacks to Unify switches. If you go to use third-party switches, it becomes hugely problematic to adopt and manage Unify access points because the, it either wants to pass all the trunk traffic or it doesn't want to talk to the controller. And Naylor and Steve and I went around after, on the after show, post show after Ask Noah last week. We talked about this for a good long time. And I said, I'm struggling with this. And everybody had their own way of working around it, but we'd never really solved it. And so last week we were really digging in, thought, hey, we've really got to get our head wrapped around this because we had a client that needed a bunch of SSIDs and a bunch of VLANs exposed over Wi-Fi and our other workarounds weren't going to, going to work. So I dug in and the short answer is this. What you'll want to do is if you if you go with my recommendation, you purchase a Unify access point, you will set your switch port as a trunk port. You will specify the PVID of the management VLAN that your controller is going to set on. The access point becomes a dumb network device that just plugs into a switch, a dumb switch port access port and says, I'm I get my traffic traffic tagged through the switch. So the access point itself isn't tagging its own management traffic and it just exists as a dumb device on your network. Then because the switch port is a trunk port, in fact, it's able to tag multiple VLANs and then pass those to the access point. You'll want to make sure if you want your, your management VLAN exposed over Wi-Fi that you both specify that as a PVID and also tag that traffic on the switch need to be there in both places. Um, but that will allow you to do that with the Unify access point. The, my suspicion as to why you're getting uh, poor performance is that the NetGate R6400 isn't really designed to process VLAN tags and then send that information out over separate SSIDs and that extra processing required to, to do that is probably what's dragging the performance down. It's probably really designed to have a single SSID, maybe a guest network, um, and all built into the, the built-in Netgear software. So th that's likely where your performance issue is coming down. I think you'd pretty easily solve that with the UAPAC Pro. A third of an acre property, I don't think you're going to have a problem putting that up in the center of your house and getting a connection to it from basically anywhere. Um, but if... Uh, but yeah, so I guess before we get to the IP camera stuff, Steve, do you have anything to add or, or, or any advice to Wave for his uh, for setting up a network with uh, VLANs and Wi-Fi in his house? Well, I'd say that it's definitely worthwhile, depending on how you like to segregate traffic. I personally, it, I guess it depends on how many devices he has. Um, with the number of devices that I have, I know that these access points can handle more than that, but... Um, I definitely like to have at least two access points just to kind of spread the load around, especially especially when you're getting outside of, let's say, the comfortable range of an access point. Um, 
I would at probably at minimum, I would probably put them kitty corner, one in the basement, one in the one in your top level floor. And mm. that should give you kind of maximum coverage both inside and outside. Yeah, those that's 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 a great recommendation. I I wouldn't I, I'm not so concerned about the access points running. I think they're I think per the spec, they're good to like 250 clients or some absurd thing. The problem is when you get that much RF noise in an environment, you're right. It's going to become potentially problematic if you can get a, if you can get turn all the access points down to low power, spread them up across the house or across the property, and then let small little clusters of devices connect to their closest access point. I think that's where he's going to get the best performance. Well, just because they have like a maximum number of of clients that they can support doesn't mean that they're taking into account like a really chatty client. Like mm. the um, Wi-Fi still works on on a, a roughly a token based system which means that if i'm chatting everybody else has to has to wait mm-hmm. until i'm done chatting and so what that means is if you've got a bunch of you only have to have a, a few really chatty things in order for the rest of your network to suffer adverse effects and so um the maximum number of clients that an access point can theoretically handle isn't taking into account the fact that one of them is monopolizing 15% of the time just being really chatty. That's that's a great point, Steve. So uh, I want to move on to his uh, to his questions about video, and then we'll touch on the VM thing. So as far as video, you have a couple of options. If you're looking for the most brain-dead simple, I just want to plug it in and make it work, and I want to spend the least amount of money as possible, get yourself an access camera with Wi-Fi. Um, you can buy them used on eBay for as little as thirty, forty dollars. You can buy a current model for a few hundred dollars. They they support Wi-Fi. You double sided tape it up to the ceiling. Obviously, if you're going over Wi-Fi, you're going to still have to provide power. And with access, you're basically going to get an uh, not basically you are going to get an RTSP feed. And so, if you want, you can open up VLC, open network location, paste the RTSP address in there. Uh, authenticate with your username and password. Bob's your uncle. You're watching your baby. So that's that's the easiest, straightforward, stick a thing on the wall and get it done. If you wanted to get more, a little bit more advanced, you can purchase any of Synology's uh, disk stations, everything from their $100 model all the way up to their uh, like $10,000, $7,000 rack station. And all of them will support a third-party add-on called Surveillance Station. Surveillance Station is their NVR solution. And one of the things that I love about Surveillance Station is it comes with two, there's two apps that you can use with it. One is DS Cam, so you can view all of your camera feeds on your phone. The other one allows you to install an app on your phone and it registers an old Android or iOS device as an IP camera. So if you have an extra phone that's sitting around, you can install the app and go and just log into surveillance station and it populates as an IP camera. You connect to it. And again, Bob's your uncle. You're looking at your baby. All of those solutions will keep all of the traffic local and on your network. And unless you forward ports on your router to expose it to an up on service, or if you go into Synology surveillance station and connect it to their remote uh, viewing station, which is off by default. If you don't do either of those two things, it won't be accessible from outside of your network. Again, assuming you have good network security in place. So that's where I would start with uh, for cameras. Again, the reason, one of the big things that I, 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 I tell people to go with access cameras is you can use them in a standalone mode. You can use them. It, you could start with just accessing it over VLC and down the road, you could install surveillance station. If you wanted to go a more open source route, you could use something like zone minder. Um, it's going to be a little more work to set up and, in my opinion, the default UI isn't going to be quite as elegant as surveillance station, but you can get the job done. Um, when it comes to virtualization, Steve, this this question kind of intrigues me. So I oh, oh sorry. So uh, is there any other options that you can think of, Steve, that he could use to get a camera that he could get eyes on his baby? I would. Well, because of my DIY nature, I would probably go with a Raspberry Pi Zero two. W, so the one with the Wi-Fi, because um, that's got plenty of grunt. It's 15 bucks. And then I'd slap a, a, a webcam on it. So it only takes five volts because that's all that it takes to power a Raspberry Pi. And uh, so you can basically tuck that anywhere that you want to. And yeah, you could then serve um, RTSP or WebRTC if you wanted to. You could use something like um, Bolina Cam 
and there's plenty of other types of software, but that's kind of what I would do. I would just toss it up there and call it a day. I wouldn't use an actual project uh, like like what you're talking about because I don't think, I, I don't know, I didn't get the sense that I, like an NVR was a required, like even thought of as part of this. My, mm. my thought was that this was just a, hey, I hear a noise, wake up the camera and like what's going on in the room as opposed to trying to keep track of things. So yeah, I, it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. I, I, so and to be clear, the recommendation from the NVR does not come from a standpoint of I think you need to record stuff, but it does come from uh, from the perspective of I know myself and I to know that when this is a this is a thing that happens once a week. Order a pizza. Forget that I order a pizza for whatever food I order. Forget that that happened. And all of a sudden the doorbell rings and I'm. Who's at the door? And I want to pull it up. If I had to launch VLC, file, network location, open network location, paste the RT. Oh, crap. I don't have the RTSP address. Hold on. Grab that. Paste it in. Play. Username. Password. That process seems a bit cumbersome. It There is something to be said about having the app installed and configured on your phone. You just pull it up and there the cameras are, even if you don't use any of the recording functionality. Now, I say that with the disclaimer that there are likely plenty of pre-configured Android apps that can just play a camera stream if you went in their iOS or whatever it is you're using uh, could do that. Um, but to me, that's where the, and, and it's, that's twice as true if you have more than one camera, right? And then it becomes, I want to log into a single point and have access to all of the cameras. I'll throw in, I'll throw two other, uh, bounce two other ideas off of you, Steve. So the first is, on the realm or in in the same genre of do it yourself, have you played or or or, or read into the Pine Cube at all? I have not, but I will say there is this wonderful thing that will solve your earlier problem. Okay, it's this it's it's a very modern invention. It's called a bookmark, and what the bookmark does <laughs> is keeps all of that stuff for you, so you don't have to remember it, and then you can just click a button and have all that stuff for you. So you might want to check that out after the show. I'll, I'll take a, I'll, I'll take a look at it. I'll see if I can find a tutorial on how to use bookmarks. Uh, um, so the so the, so the Pine Cube is a it's it it is it is meant as a do-it-yourself camera. It comes with a 120 megabytes of RAM. It's powered over Ethernet. It has a bootable SD card, and I think the stupid thing is 30 bucks. So I mean, it could be a really easy way to get a do-it-yourself uh, camera on there as well. That that might be an option. Um, to look into. So going into his virtualization problem. So is, is, you know, I get it. It, it, I always told myself if I I was, if I ever was in the military and was stationed and got to shoot a bunch of really cool guns, I would want to purchase all those really cool guns when I got back. And I would be hugely frustrated if I couldn't, if I couldn't go out to the range with my buddies and be like, here, look what I can do with this gun. And I learned how to do this. And like, that would be really cool. So the less cool version of that is when we go and play with network technology or IT system administrative technology, it's fun to take that into our home. And yes, that gets really strange looks from our wives. Why do we need that? Well, it does that. I know. Why do we need that in our house? Well, we do. So I, I get where you're coming from where you say, hey, this is what I use at work and this is what I want to bring home. But what I would tell you is I might encourage you to flip that model a little bit if you can. If you're out of support and it's old from VM, it probably doesn't have a lot of value in practical skills at work anyway. Here's the other thing that I find is true more often than it is not. If you can take a piece of free and open source technology, put it into your home, get it up and running, get your head wrapped around it, and it works, when the next opportunity comes at work and they say, hey, we've got to do this, and oh my gosh, the VM licenseware is going to be $25,000, and we don't have, hey, I have an idea, watch that, well, we could do this, and it'll cost us not $25,000. Really? And now the door is open. But that only happens if, A, you are aware of the technology, B, you have your head wrapped around it to the point that you can spin it up and demo it to somebody. But when people can see that, that, Hey, I didn't have to buy this crazy license key. I get the updates right away. All of that. That is where I think there's some tremendous value in, in open source stuff, particularly in open source virtualization. So I would encourage you to do a couple of things. Consider looking at, uh, at libvert. It is like three commands to get, uh, to take a stock red hat or Alma or uh, Rocky Linux server and turn it into a virtual host. 
from there, you can connect to it. Actually, you can do just about everything now in Cockpit. So if you install Cockpit, you literally go to the server's IP, colon 9090, whatever. Yeah, 9090, and, and log in and do everything from a web UI. But if you want to be a little more geeky about it, then you can use something like Vert Manager. And if you want to be, you know, neckbeard extreme, then do everything with Verse from the command line. Uh, so I might start there and just kind of get your head wrapped around Libvert. If you want more things that would get you some of the same features that you pay for, um, like vCenters, vMotion, and stuff like that, that's when I would start looking at something like Overt. And there you're going to get high availability. Now you're going to want to have uh, centralized storage if you're going to go that route. But that's going to let you flip all sorts of buttons and levers. So Steve, you work with this stuff on almost a daily basis. What are your thoughts? Undoubtedly, you work with VMware as well. Yep, I do. Um, I actually, after after having worked with VMware, I still like going back to Libvirt. It's like coming home, I guess. Mm. And uh, I, I really like it. I like Overt as well. I like Red Hat's product uh, called Rev. And I'll give that a little plug because I think that it does a really good job at what it what it's trying to do. So Steve, so, can I can I interrupt you for just one second? I just want to make sure I understand mm-hmm. this. Is Rev and Overt are essentially the same thing? RHV is Red Hat's version of it. Overt is the open sourced available to everyone version. Do I understand that right? Well, I mean, Rev is open source, so I don't the I want to make sure that we're clear about the idea. A lot of people are like, oh, well, you know. Cockpit is the open source version of Web Console, or mm. Overt is the open source version of Rev. And like, it's all open source. The difference is that you can go out and run Rev if you want to. There's there's nothing that's going to stop you from that. But if you want to get the updates from the Red Hat servers, that's ah. part of the value add that that comes in. So, just a little bit of a, a tangent here. When Red Hat takes an up, upstream project like Overt, like OKD you know, you name it, and then we productize it, there is there is an extra layer of polish that goes in there. So we do feature freezes, we do um, we do backporting into that. So this, this doesn't necessarily affect the home labber, but I was just explaining this to a client just today, actually. They were saying, well, do you have the latest version of Java, which is 2.7 point whatever, for the log4j vulnerability? And I was saying, well, what Red Hat does oftentimes is they backport those security changes into the current version. And the reason that you might do that is because you don't necessarily want to pull in new features to plug a hole. Because if you've got a feature set that changes underneath of you mm-hmm. and you have to patch a security thing, that can throw all kinds of wrenches into it. So part of the value add that Red Hat does is make sure that you know all of those CVEs get backported within reason where you're not getting a feature update, you're getting the security or the bug fixes that you need without having a feature update. And an easy way to say that, um, to show where there's value in that is, for example, the Java package itself. Mm -hmm. If anybody's ever tried to connect to a DRAC or a remote management console that uses Java, the newer versions of Java will complain and you have to do all kinds of jumping through hoops in order to connect to these things. And most people won't do that. And that's because there's been a feature upgrade and there's like extra security protocols now. And so a lot of people I know will actually launch a VM with an older version of the software on it just to be able to connect to these DRACs. And so (laughs) that's one of those cases where you don't want the latest features. You just want the security patch because it changes your workflow. So there's a lot of value add that Red Hat brings to a product where they're either making sure that you're doing these backports or the extra QA that goes into it in, on top of supporting, you know, specific configurations. I would dovetail onto that and just say that it gives you a nice, easy on-ramp if you want to transition to a supported system. Hey, the music in our ears means we're out of time. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. AskNoahShow.com. Have a good week.